Voice of San Diego podcasts are sponsored by the Bob Nelson Charitable Fund, honoring the San Diego Harbor Police Foundation. This Voice of San Diego podcast is sponsored in part by the San Diego County Bar Association. As a nonprofit news organization, Voice of San Diego depends on our members, foundations, and sponsors to provide funding for the investigative journalism you expect from Voice of San Diego. The election of qualified judges is essential to our justice system. When you vote on March 3rd, you'll be able to choose from 11 candidates for judge running in four judicial races. For more than 40 years, the San Diego County Bar Association has provided evaluations of candidates running in contested judicial elections to help inform your decision. To view the evaluations for 2020, visit judgechoices.com. And if you like Voice of San Diego's work and want to become a sponsor, contact Julianne Marco at julianne at vosd.org. Thanks for joining us on the Voice of San Diego podcast in partnership with News Radio 600 Coco. I am Scott Lewis, CEO and editor in chief at Voice of San Diego. I'm joined as always by assistant editor Andrew Keats. Hello. What's up, buddy? How are you? Good. Managing editor Sarah Libby. Hello. Hello. We have done it. We shipped the third edition of A Parent's Guide to Public Schools. It's done. It's happened. Very proud of that. We'll talk about that briefly. And it's go time for Measure C. That's the initiative to raise the hotel room tax, fund an expansion of the convention center, blah, blah, blah. But one person is mucking things up. We're going to talk about that and why and some of the discussion around the funding for the homelessness part. And Poway Unified School District is back in the bond market. We'll talk to reporter Ashley McGlone about why that is a big deal. But first, Voice of San Diego launched 15 years ago Sunday. I remember that. Well, I was actually nowhere near here or part of Voice. And yet you remember it well. In any way. I do. I remember because... I remember it too. You do? Yeah. Huh? I was a college journalist in Los Angeles and thought, hey, good. There are journalism things happening. Yeah. So uh, Andrew Donahue produced a story for the first edition. It was. It came out. It looked nice. It was about the sort of history to that point of the city of San Diego's financial troubles and the scandal that kind of enveloped it. He had some new revelations in that, and it was uh, it was quite a thing. Every, we, we were all excited to see if it would get any legs, and I was watching it from South Carolina at the time. I didn't start uh, actually freelancing for voice until May of 2005, so not quite 15 years ago, and then... Uh, I came on as a full-time employee in October 2005. So, uh, been quite a run. There's a lot of interesting moments. We were trying. We were reflecting on a couple of them. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, internal moments. Yeah. <laughs> there's obviously the big ones when we we broke a big story about embezzlement at the Southeastern Economic Development Corporation, and right after that, the FBI seized all their computers and. The mayor put out a big memo saying if what voice reported is true, like we got we're gonna have to do a lot of things. And that was a moment. Of course, the New York Times did a story about us. And then there was the time that Liam Dillon uh, you know walked the, into the glass door. It was violent. <laughs> was that the one you were talking about? 
or stole my thunder a little bit. So okay, I, I, okay. <laughs> I thought you were gonna like maybe talk about one of his journalistic accomplishments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were those. No, yeah, we're all gathered in the boardroom waiting for him to come make a presentation, and he came around super confident, smashed right into the window. Perhaps the most violent thing I've ever seen. Yes, it's in live. my top five Voice of San Diego moments. Yes, uh, so. Yeah, 15 years. I'm very proud of it. We've changed a lot. Uh, we've evolved and and adjusted, and I think we're as we're as powerful and influential as, as I could have hoped we'd be 15 years from now. I have a lot less hair. That seems to be a problem. Well, that's fine. Whatever. It's fine. I'm married. It's all set. <laughs> all right. We'll be dead soon. <laughs> uh, the Aspen Institute did a story, a report for the California Healthcare Foundation and some of the grants it made and, and the role of journalism in public health issues. And we were mentioned in there as a case study about well, many, many times. And there was one of the interviews that they did that uh, we, we took particular notice of. It said uh, that the interviewee echoed a lot of sentiments about how important we had been to the hepatitis A reporting and the crisis around it and the mobilization that occurred after our reporting in, uh, what was that, 2016? Uh, no. 2017. 2017. Uh, and, you know, how that really spurred change around here. And the interviewee said this, she likened a Voice of San Diego to a little chihuahua nipping at your heels all the time at the politicians. I like the chihuahua. I feel like it's meant to be kind of a dig, but it's also amazing. I think it's meant to just like really highlight how annoying we can be to people who need to be annoyed. Yeah. So I guess I think Chihuahuas are. I've always wanted a Chihuahua, a little cute one that was named Bear, just like name it like the biggest thing possible, or Mammoth. <laughs> yeah. No. No. I get it. Because <laughs> it's I not do get big. It. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, right. I don't know. I think we're. <laughs> I think we're bigger than the smallest possible dog. That's true. <laughs> yeah, or the largest possible rodent. I didn't know. <laughs> there both there you go. Than both of those things. I, I once heard a story that there were feral chihuahuas running around a street in City Heights, uh, Orange Avenue, and like chasing bicyclists, particularly. Wow. And I went and chased it for like a day. I went to go look for these. You chased the story about the chihuahuas chasing bikes. Yeah. Wow. It would be like a nice slice of life. Uh, but it uh, <laughs> couldn't find them to interview them. I'm really sad you didn't find that. What did your reporting process look like? <laughs> what were you doing? They, I got a tip that just like <laughs> got like a pork chop and put it on your on, on no, your I, belt. Th- I like... got a tip that on Orange Avenue in City Heights, it was it was like everybody talked about it and it was a menace. So I went up to a bunch of people and they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I I thought I hope whoever told you that was just like around a corner, just like, oh my God, look at this idiot. This is so funny. Well, they never revealed got themselves. Him. All right. Well, we did just release our third edition of a parents guide to public schools. We got new data this year in it. Uh includes teacher experience at each school and some explainers on uh some takes from experts about what you should think about when you look for a school. A lot of diverse takes on that. Uh, explainers of what a, what a charter school is, what transitional kindergarten is, what a magnet school is. But then we added all that new data to the, the tables. It kind of looks like consumer reports. And uh, I'm proud of this one. This one looks good. Will Huntsbury uh, helped manage the project. Julianne Marco, Sarah, of course, had a role, me. Um, but uh, I also wanted to shout out to uh, UC San Diego Center for Research and Evaluation. 
and uh, Laura Cohn at the Center for Local Income Mobility at the Workforce Partnership, and Gladys Selfridge, and Georgia Kovacs at the UC San Diego Extension. Uh, all of them helped uh, really make this possible for us. So, yeah. You know, I follow the California legislature very closely, yeah. and a few years ago when they switched to this new system for grading schools, the schools dashboard, yeah. most of the criticism focused on the fact that they made it virtually impossible to compare schools. You yeah. can look up an individual school, but there's essentially no way to compare across schools if you're like shopping for a school. Yeah. And so it's really nice that there is a way to actually do that. Yeah, they have this incredibly complex color code system for each school of what like each color means. We translated that into these, they're called Harvey Balls. That's what Consumer Reports uses. And then um, arrows that we did on that. And that's just the test scores for English and math. We also have in there, like I said, teacher experience for the first time, average teacher experience. And so you look at some of these schools, you'll see like high teacher experience, very low chronic absenteeism, high graduation rates, good scores. That's obviously like a more positive environment. And you look at one literally right next to it in the list, like Lincoln High versus La Jolla High or something. And it's just the opposite. And it's like... So it's one it's one part, you know, consumer uh, report, but also like, you know, it's hard to look away from some of these inequities. It's just it's really striking. So check that out. We have them at most public libraries in the city of San Diego. We're distributing them also to preschools. And we have a lot of partners like the Barrio Logan College Institute and others that are handing them out. And so we will be announcing over time different uh, meetings where we're going to go talk and walk people through them. So if you're interested in that, uh, please come by and and. We'll try to answer your questions, and if we don't have the answer, we'll write them down, and we'll, of course, email you after that with the answer. <laughs> we never forget to do that, um, but uh, it's it's something I'm really proud of, and, and yet another product. So we have San Diego 101, the Parents' Guide to uh, Public Schools. We have the, um, the various uh, San Diego Explains. All that is part of this sort of academy effort we have to help people understand their community and... Uh, big passion of mine so on our 15th year anniversary i think that's a nice little coda for it so dope all right measure c we have been closely following the travails of measure c even before it was known as measure c that's the initiative the mayor labor unions hotel owners want to pass to raise the hotel room tax and fund an expansion of the convention center homeless services and roads last week we reported that one man michael mcconnell he runs the homeless news feed and homelessness SD, I think it is. Uh, he's, um, you know, owned La Jolla Coin Shop. He sold his coin shop and has very expressly used the revenue he got, the money he got from that to spend on politics. And he has spent more than $236,000 on mailers and ads against Measure C. And we asked him why. And he said a few things. You can check it out in the politics report. But one of the things he said was just advocacy for a better city. He's just basically saying like any of this money is misspent all this money is misspent on homelessness and we should have something better a lot of people on the other side saying like you're literally hurting people that you think we you know you want us to help more so kind of a fascinating debate uh with two-thirds requirement for this measure to pass you can't have much opposition let alone two hundred thirty-six thousand dollars or more against it we should also add here that he, he has not at any point in the last few years, made his opposition to this measure a secret. No. Nor his intent to spend money opposing the measure. 
he had explicitly promised to do so long before it ever qualified for the ballot. Um, I recall talking to him at a uh, city council debate in 2018 where he was spending money uh, on Monica Montgomery's city council campaign. And he told me at that time, I believe, you know, again, he was very explicit, very out front about this. He was spending on Monica because he supported Monica and wanted her to win. But also it was sort of a test run for him for right now. He was learning how to deploy resources in a campaign environment because he's not a campaign professional. He had never done it before. So it, that was sort of his his you know, his, his training wheels on how to affect electoral outcomes. So to the extent that he's pissed off a lot of people who support Measure C, they, you know, they can't say that this took them by surprise. They could not have been blindsided by this. He had promised to do it. Yeah. And we've seen this before. We saw, you know, Doug Manchester has put money in. But these are people usually with like direct interests in the race or in the outcome or something. And and obviously he has interest as a citizen in, in all these things, but it's certainly just an interesting decision. Uh, and he, every time I asked him, like, what, why? Like, why put so much personal wealth in there? He would always go back to why Measure C was bad, as though the, the connection to why you would want to pay to kill it, it was pretty obvious. And and um, it, it's, it's, it's just an interesting moment, really, I think, for local politics. The last time I saw... Somebody do something like this was in 2004. Do you ever remember Mel Shapiro? Of course. Mel Shapiro, Brooklyn accent. You know, he, Fair, yeah. he, he was, he, his name is on all of these, uh, you know, He was a court classic cases. city council gadfly. Yeah. He sued the city often. He was a public commenter. Public open, open government. government advocate. Yeah. He, he spent, I remember he hated the strong mayor form of government proposals so badly in 2004, when it was going up to ballot, he spent like $20,000 of his own money against it. Of course, it passed. So that's like the last sort of parallel I can think. Like somebody you you didn't realize like would even have that much money, yeah. you know, to, to drop in. So that's kind of fascinating. But at the heart of it, we did some reporting this, this week about what McConnell's concerns were about the homeless funding within there. And there were kind of two big questions that Lisa Halverstadt identified that were the problem with uh, or that were not really the problem, but the source of concern, right? What were those two questions? So one is whether it's going to generate enough money. And I think this is sort of gets to the heart of McConnell's argument. And I think he would argue that the homelessness aspect of it has sort of been co-opted by the Measure C proponents now that that's like a popular thing that people want to spend money um, to fix. And so, you know, his argument is that the money should go towards homelessness. And as Lisa pointed out, you know, 59% of the funds go to the convention center expansion. And after five years, um, a, a portion of it goes towards road repairs as well. So that's one piece of it is that this isn't enough money being directed towards homelessness and that we should be doing something where all of our efforts are going towards homelessness services. And then the other piece of it is the fact that there is no directive for how the money is going to be spent. And so the proponents, I think, argue that that's a feature and not a bug, that you don't want to tie the hands of future you know, city leaders to say you have to spend it on these prescribed solutions when maybe those solutions won't be right for us in five years. Mm -hmm. um, but that also means that it's really hard to hold any of it accountable 
And I think that that's an issue for McConnell also. Yeah. And so in your talking with him, he he sort of added a, a third thing, which is that it, although they are not in direct competition, the passage of Measure C, which does not necessarily produce any new homes for uh, people who are currently living on the streets, may weaken the electoral prospects of a housing bond in November. Um, and he cited the Barbara Breeze basically laying out that exact rationale for where she stands on those two measures as another reason that he doesn't think that this is a good idea. Yeah, he's obviously very supportive of the effort to raise property taxes in November to fund affordable housing construction. And I don't think he's he's actually said, I support that, I really want that to pass, but it's clear like that's the kind of thing he, propo- he prefers. And, and yeah, that this is kind of... Uh, you know, um, what is it when you eat your same species? Uh, uh, S- say that again. <laughs> <laughs> cannibalism. Cannibalism. Yeah, it, like it cannibalizes the. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know the effort. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to the fact that there are no directives for how the money should be spent because he said, you know, there's no guarantee this will produce even a single unit of housing, and even in fact, if it all the money went toward housing, it would still produce a very small amount of housing, yeah. but he's arguing maybe none of it will. Yeah, so at the I, ma- I managed a mayoral debate the other night, and I asked, so Lisa actually set up a, uh, Lisa Halverstadt set up a good question for me. She says, in that in that plan, in Measure C, it says in five years, you ha- the mayor has to come up with a plan for how that money in homelessness is going to be spent. And I asked them, like, what would they prioritize in that? And almost all of them said, permanent supportive housing in it I, even Barbara Bree and so they they were they were all thinking that this is going to have specific you know it could be packaged to actually build affordable housing but i think there's a lot of other concern that the state and others have have spent so much money to help homelessness in San Diego that that money could dry up someday and this funding source would be key to backfilling that which is on the one hand probably important but on the other hand kind of an indictment of the situation now as though this won't be new this could be used very well to just keep going just to supplement or supplant what we're doing right now so um it's a really fascinating moment for that measure uh tony Kravarik, the chairman of the republican party of san diego and the republican party itself have made clear that they also oppose measure c but there was a weird uh, thing that came up this week. Uh, Republican campaign mailer will include this message from San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner. It says, I ask that you please join me in supporting policy initiatives that reduce homelessness, fix our streets, and support the strengthening of our economy, including our convention and tourism industries. So, Which policy does that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it turns out that little message was literally paid for by the San Diego Tourism Authority. And the Tourism Authority is the former Convention and Visitors Bureau. Convis. Convis, and it uh, gets most of its money from a hotel tax that the hotels put themselves on the on the bills of their it's, clients. Yeah, it's not a tax. That's a, a self-assessment. <laughs> it's clearly a self-assessment. And so they get all and that. When they, when they list it as a tax on their own receipts, yeah. that's, ignore that. that ignore that's that. not really what's ignore happening. Ignore that. It's still a self-assessment. Self-assessment is ministered by the city, so we were wondering, like, why would they, you know, how they do that? They said, "Look, look, this is the other funds we get from actual dues that hotels pay separately." They gave five thousand dollars to the Republican Party. (coughs) Excuse me, 
three, two. The Tourism Authority CEO, Joe Terzi, told me, he said that the message was meant to tell Republicans about how important Measure C is. But again, they literally... They want you to know it's important so that you'll vote against it. They want you to to know it's important, but not enough to actually say it. The Republican Party was clearly, they're opposed to it. So they're willing to, for $5,000, put a thing in their mailer that's supposedly for it. But they can't actually use the words. I, I just I wish I was part of the email exchange of how the, the, the text was, was negotiated because that's just classic modern politics. I like the the strengthening our economy, comma, including our convention convention and tourism in uh, industries, which I'm certain that that was part of the massaged email back and forth there. Yeah. At one point that just said, and support strengthening strengthening our convention and tourism. Th- so this is a $5,000 bet that yeah. people will, A, know that what they're talking about is Measure C, yeah. B, know that Measure C relates to conventions and tourism, and then C, realize that this is a pro argument for that and that they should even though the republican party opposes this they should take the message from the mayor and support that's a interesting way to do things (laughs) all right we've got uh, a lot more coming up Uh, please stay tuned and uh, we've got ashley mcglone coming on to talk about poway's re-emergence in the bond market and much more Hey y'all, Will Huntsbury here. I'm the education reporter for Voice of San Diego, and we just released the 2020 edition of our Parents' Guide to Public Schools. We're hosting community meetings to explain how to use the guide and answer your questions. Join us on Tuesday, February 11th at 6 p.m. at the Rancho Bernardo Library to talk about the guide. We'll answer your questions about magnet schools and charter schools. We'll talk about test scores and school safety, after school care, and everything you need to know to navigate school choice. See you there. Well, I mentioned this is Voice of San Diego's 15th birthday, I guess, 15th anniversary of its launch, February 9, 2005. And one of the biggest stories we did over that period was an investigation into how Poway Unified School District was able to borrow $105 million and then arrange to pay it back in a way that would cost taxpayers $1 billion over the life of this payback system. Our investigation of that whole thing and the series that came out of it turned into major changes in Poway's Union, Poway Unified School District's leadership, in the way that uh, it does bonds, and in state law. So there was a new law that was passed that said Districts can't be doing stuff like this. Now the district is back in the market to borrow again. Joining us in studio or on the line is Ashley McGlone. Ashley, hello. Hi, Scott. Thank you for taking the time. So when we look back at what happened, what was the name of that sort of bond that when you when you borrow you know, a little bit out and you have to pay back over time? You, you actually, I think the rule is like the reason it gets so big is because they don't pay anything back for for like a lot of years, right? Right. So what it was called was a capital appreciation bond. And the way that they structured it, it's a 40-year 
uh, repayment timeline, but they put off making any payments for the first 20 years and essentially deal with repayments and interest on, on a balloon payment basis for the final 20 years. And that just inflates the debt in a dramatic way in this case, as we saw in Poway and other districts did this too. Um, but yeah, they, so they haven't even made the first payment on that particular debt and won't until 2031 and then we'll continue paying it through 2051. That's just, that's just, say that again. So in 2011, they borrowed a hundred, you know, basically a hundred million dollars, a little more than that. Mm-hmm. And they will not start making payments on it until 2031? Yes. Correct. And we'll continue paying that debt through 2051, again, on an inflated basis through what was then known as the 40-year capital appreciation bond structure. New rules, you know, don't allow such high repayments, you know, part of the reforms that were sparked, you know, following attention on these these types of deals that were being made by school districts like Poway and others. Um, But yeah, so definitely uh, it was a different world back then. And so that debt hasn't even come due, but it's still on Poway's books as we speak. So if you if you graduated from Poway Unified School District in 2011, you'd be like almost 40 before they even started paying back the 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 loan they took out then. That's fascinating. Right. And they did so in part because they they told taxpayers at the time when they approved that bond measure in 2008 Hey, we want to keep your taxes low. We want to, you know, not raise taxes. We're just going to push it out. <laughs> and so voters didn't totally understand what they meant by that. I don't think. Um, and again, even some of the, you know, officials, it wasn't really clear when they did that specific deal. And just to be clear, too, bond measures, you know, especially back then. Um, Voters aren't told, hey, you know, this bond measure, we're seeking X millions of dollars in taxes for this many millions of dollars in school construction projects, but it's going to ultimately cost us, you know, this exponential amount to repay with interest over decades. Often voters never saw what that estimated total debt cost was. They just see that principal amount that the school is going to get and collect to pay for the projects. Now, in 2014, a transparency law was put on the books that says, okay, school districts, you need to tell the voters, at least estimate your best guess of what you think that debt is going to cost, knowing that, you know, they're going to issue these bonds over time and issue this debt over time, and it might fluctuate with different interest rates and such. But they voters need to have a better understanding of when you see a specific dollar number in the ballot, that's not really the number that they're totally going to be on the hook for. It's actually going to be that number plus interest. And depending on the structure of the deal, like in this case, it could be much, much higher. Wow. Yeah. So, okay. What, what did happen after the controversy? We did a series of stories. It really turned into a big issue. I remember a lot of TV and others followed up, but then a lot of like statewide and even international financial analysts and others just torched the district for this sort of borrowing. What happened? What was the fallout? Yeah, so both local um, local residents that are, again, ultimately on the hook for, for repaying that debt, um, as well as local public officials, the county uh, treasurer was not thrilled about it and made that very clear. The state treasurer actually chimed in at the time um, and was really vocal and criticizing both the staff at Poway that put this bond in place and agreed to those terms, as well as the school board, and said that local residents should vote them out of office and, and they should be terminated. That largely happened, and not the staff side so much, but the 
multiple school board members that had signed off on that deal were voted out of office in when they were back up for election in 20 of 2014. One one board member had remained um, around, and again the superintendent at the time remained around until he was let go a couple years later for something unrelated. Um, but yeah, there was quite quite an impact again on the state level. There was that transparency law that was put into effect where districts have to tell voters their best guess on the debt costs, um, and also now what what was formerly you know these capital appreciation bonds with these outrageous sort of arrangements and 40 years and inflated maybe 10 times as high. Now school districts are limited and it essentially reforms that were put in place now require that districts can't pay back more than four times the principal. So that really reined in this sort of exotic borrowing structure for school districts and really kind of put an end to that practice altogether. Um, so these capital appreciation bonds still do exist, um, but there's new limits. Again, it's four times. They have to be what's called callable, where you can refund them and, and you know, refinance essentially out of the deal if the timeline is longer than I think it's 10 years. Poway does not have that option with this prior bond. Uh, so quite a lot, you know, on the landscape has changed for school districts across the Yeah, it's a, a little bit of a red flag when they say, in the bond or in a, whenever you borrow money and they're like, nope, you can't ever repay this early. you got to just mm -hmm. sit on it and deal with it. That's a mm -hmm. little bit of a red flag. Okay, so now they are back into the market to borrow again. What are they asking for and what will it cost? Measure P um, is going to appear on the March 2020 ballot. They want voters to approve $448 million in new school bonds uh, to fund that amount of school construction projects. They're estimating that will cost ultimately $650 million to repay um, over roughly 28 to 30 years. That works out to a, a little, you know, less than $2 for every $1 borrowed. So that's that's a drastic difference um, is what they're they're putting before voters. Yeah, just to highlight um, that, just real quick. So yeah. $100 million dollars is going to cost them a billion to pay back literally more than four times that is going to cost them a lot less to pay back with this new system it just shows you how out of whack that one was before yeah and the new leadership there again there is a new superintendent a new business chief a new um school board uh they say hey you know we're new we we get that people were pissed about the past we we've they've even got on their bond fact webpage, an acknowledgement that that was a bad decision, uh, that that shouldn't have happened. But we we still have crumbling infrastructure. We still have new security needs that we need to address, and we don't have the money to do it. So please, please, you know, give us another shot. Um, they, they, they're actually sort of also treating this as an opportunity to rebuild trust with the community because the $448 million that they're asking is really like a fraction of the total, you know, billion dollars in infrastructure needs that they've had a consultant identify as necessary to keep their kids or to keep their schools in good repair. Um, but they're like, okay, we're going to ask voters for $448 million. You know, it'll be roughly a, a $33 tax increase when all those bonds are issued. Um, and hopefully, you know, we can do good by them and maybe come back, you know, for more later if if we can rebuild that trust. Does, is that the $33 per $100,000 of assessed value of a property? Is that what that is? Correct. Yeah, just to be clear, yeah, thirty-three dollars and ninety cents per one hundred thousand of assessed value. So you know it works out. You know more than that if you get a five hundred thousand dollar home. What they're saying is the average homeowner in the Poway district will see something around two hundred dollars a year added as a result of this bond once all those bonds are sold. Hmm. Um, so that kind of gives you a sense of the home ownership so, yeah. uh, levels there. It seems like a, a maybe a more healthier financing system. But are, you also mentioned that they might be doing things that they already promised they would try to have fixed by now. 
Yeah, so definitely the, the issue of security has come up in this bond and like other local school bonds in recent years. Um, security and safety issues very much have were, you know, present in the 2008, you know, bond, um, you know, not too long ago. And so my question to them is, okay, well, what's different this time? They say, well, there were some schools that we didn't get to in the last bond, first of all. And second of all, even if we added, for instance, perimeter fencing at schools last time around, we're really focused now on single points of entry given this new era of school lockdowns. And that's important to us. And so this new money will help us do things like that. It'll help us put in place an even more advanced you know, emergency communication system than maybe what we did last time. You know, surveillance cameras are in both of them. Um, so again, maybe there's more cameras they'd like on campus compared to what their standards were previously. And they're really harping on the fact that this is this is a new era. We have new needs now that, now that just didn't exist before. But there's also some very familiar, you know, remove uh, lead paint, remove asbestos. Yeah. Uh, those are sort of your typical crumbling infrastructure, you know, buzzwords that you see in these bonds very often. Asbestos, uh, that, that'll be in these yeah. things for a hundred years from now. They'll still be saying yeah. they're going to get asbestos out. All right. Ashley McGlone, thank you for your time. Thank you. Well, that was it. That's the show. That's the show you love. That's the show you care about. That's the show you want every Friday. I get notes saying, oh, it's not uploaded yet. What's happening? I need my, I need to have a beer and listen to the Voice of San Diego podcast. Where is it? Well, that's because you love it and you care about it. You should go to voiceofsandiego.org slash donate and be a part of our 3,000 plus donors who make this possible. You don't want to sit there and just like, just, ah, oh, that guilt of just enjoying something so much and not contributing to it. Just, ah, oh, just relieve yourself of that. You don't want to live with that. It's awful. Just get it together. Or don't feel that anymore. Thanks for listening to the Voice of San Diego podcast. It is the most popular public affairs podcast recorded in this particular area of downtown San Diego. And by the way, every time one of you come up and say that to me, that line about it being the most popular political or public affairs podcast in in this part of downtown, it makes me thrilled. It's just a, a wonderful feeling. I want to shout out to Brent who came to our um, member coffee. I didn't catch your last name. Brent uh, learned about everything through the podcast and is, is now a fan and a member. That's that's the right uh, pipeline to go through. You know, Check out the podcast. Make yourself uh, acquainted with everything and then, and then become a member. Thanks, Brent. Uh, if you love the podcast, be sure to check out the Facebook group where there's some conversation. Just search for Voice of San Diego Podcast on Facebook. And check out our newsletters, too. Andy and I do the politics report each week. And Sarah wraps up the entire week with her Sunday newsletter. What we've learned this week, get those at voiceofsandiego.org slash newsletter. I'm Scott Lewis, CEO and editor-in-chief. Andrew Keats, assistant editor. Sarah Libby's managing editor. And this show is produced by Nate John, Megan Wood, and Adriana Heldes. And it is recorded in the Voice of San Diego podcast studio, which this year is made possible, sponsored by Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. Thank you, Bob Nelson Charitable Fund. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.